Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings 2, 1 through 14. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were there in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew, new to, drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men from the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken away from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet, if you shall see me as I am being taken away from you, it shall be so. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses and of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen off of him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Thank you, Savannah. Uh, if you haven't turned there yet, please do. Second Kings chapter two, and we're going to uh, conclude our series through the life and ministry of Elijah. And um, as we find our place there, I'd like to lead us in a word of prayer. Father, as we open up uh, your word to us, Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts to you and so that we would be able to receive your word, yield to it. That we would understand clearly your charge from this passage uh, so that we can live rightly because of it, God. We, we don't want this to be a meaningless ritual, God. We want to encounter your son Jesus through his word. And so we ask that you would encounter us this morning in a powerful, transforming way. In Jesus' name, amen. An article uh, was Released in 1999 when people were just picking up on the fact that Manny Ramirez is one of the greatest hitters of all time. I'm not saying that because he was a Red Sox guy. I never liked him. He's quirky. He would mess up plays. He was mean. To, he didn't care about the team and all this kind of stuff. But as a, as a pure hitter, he's amazing. Um, and I'll get to see him when I go to Boston because it'll be uh, Dodgers at Fenway. Anyway. 
Ah, now I know why he chose Gordon Conwell. <laughs> this article was talking about the weird things that Manny does, and one of those weird things is he uses other players' bats and really ticks them off. You know, players have their own bats, and they tape it the way they want it taped, and they put the pine tar right where they want the pine tar, and they, they have their bats, and they know which ones sound right or feel right, and they... And Manny just goes up and says, yeah, I'll grab this guy's bat. And he just grabs whoever's bats, and they get mad. And one guy, Alomar, he, he banned Manny from his bats. Um, then Alomar was put on the DL. They went on a road trip, and Manny used all his bats on the road trip. Um, Manny said it's just whatever feels right. He takes six or seven of them from six or seven different players to the batting cages before the game. And whichever one feels right that day, that's the one he's going to use. He doesn't care whose bat it is. He's been asked about it, and he would say something like, well, you know what, it's not about the bat. It's about the hitter. You know, a lot of ball players that get caught up in the bat. Now, there are different bats, and there are different sizes, different shapes, different ergonomics. That's true. And there is something to carefully picking a bat. There's, that's for sure. But Manny's on to something, too, when he's saying that it's, it's not so much about the bat. It's about the hitter. Well, ball players may get too focused on bats, I think Christians can get too focused on people. Let's look at this passage as I think it drives that precise point home. As advantage is read for us, this is a story that takes place, a transition from Elijah to Elisha. Now, Elisha's already been anointed to succeed Elijah's prophet. Now, Elijah's on his way out. Elisha's on his way in. Elijah's ministry is waning. Elisha's ministry is about to start. Um, but they also had a guild of prophets that would follow them around. These sort of all the underling prophets that walked around and marveled at the things that Elijah would do. Everybody knew Elijah was next, though. There was no competition or anything, but, but there was this following. And, uh, this passage tells us now the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by whirlwind. They, that must have come to Elijah in a, in a vision, a revelation. He knew that, and he said that. I'm leaving, guys. And I'm, I'm not going to die. God is going to take me up. I, I saw a vision. He's going to take me up in a whirlwind. It's going to be crazy. Um, you guys can watch from a distance maybe, but, you know, I've got to go alone. And so Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, and I hope you guys don't get the names confused. Elijah is the older, more prominent, famous minister that took on Ahab and Jezebel and Ahaziah. Elisha is a guy that a few months ago, years ago, was was pushing oxen. He was a farm guy, and God called him, hey, you're next. Elijah turns to Elisha and says, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. That's a way of swearing. Scout's honor, cross my heart, hope to die. You know, as surely as you live, I'm not going anywhere. I'm attached to your hip until you get torn away from me. So Elijah's trying to say, just stay here and let me go get caught up in the whirlwind and and depart my ministry in this life by myself. No, no, no. I'm staying with you all the way to Bethel. Fine. So they went down to Bethel and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? Uh, Take your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Shush. 
Or why, why do you have to say, you know, when you're really dealing with something bad and somebody points it out to you? Hey, do you know that, uh, the stock market just crashed? Hey, you know that your, your job is, I read in the newspaper, your job is cutting a bunch of, uh, jobs. Are you next? And you're like, can you just be quiet? I know that. You know, I know this. I'm dealing with this. I'm wrestling with this. So we're seeing already that Elisha's not like, all right, I'm next. He's, he's having a hard time with Elijah's departure. And I love, as we read through First and Second Kings, there's all this repetition to, to show you the emphasis and the rhythm of the passage because this happens again. He says, okay, be quiet. Then verse 4, Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho now. And he's trying to de- get away from Elisha, just let me go. He said, as, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho this time. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he answered, yes, I know. Keep quiet. So everybody knew what was happening. And Elisha more and more is struggling with this. Then in verse 6, Elijah said to him again, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. So again, he tries to break away. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. And so we see this, this rhythm, this pattern of Elijah trying to make this break. And Elisha is saying, no, I, I can't. I can't do that. I'm staying with you. And every time somebody brought up, hey, Elijah is going to go. You might as well deal with it. Shut up. I'm wrestling with this. So the pattern gets interrupted in this little weird episode that happens in verse 8. So they're standing at the Jordan, which is a river, Jordan River. And Elijah takes off his cloak. And we talked about this earlier in one of the previous sermons, that this cloak, this mantle sort of represented his, his being the prophet. He was Elijah. He was recognized by this cloak. He takes, takes off that cloak. And he rolls it up and he strikes the water of the Jordan. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. And immediately your mind races back to the parting of the Red Sea where Moses led the Israelites through. Your mind goes back maybe specifically to Joshua who parted the Jordan to, to cross. And so I was Moses' mantle getting passed to Joshua, and it's this thing about leadership, that God is with this person, and that even if there's a river in the way, God will move it out of the way, because this is my man, this is my prophet. So he strikes the water with a cloak, the water parts, and they go to the other side, leave the other prophets behind. And then um, when they cross, um, something a little even more weird happens. Elijah is obviously... One more thing, one last thing to show that Elijah is the man. He is the man. He strikes the water with his cloak and the water parts. And then when they had crossed in verse 9, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. Maybe he sees this guy looks dejected. He looks lost. He looks like he's crying. He looks like a little helpless chap. Um, what, can I, what can I do for you before I leave? Maybe Elisha's waiting for it because he says, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Um, now, I, I have a confession to make. I, 
I've often seen that verse like Elijah is asking Elijah for double power. You know, if you healed as many people, I want double that. You know, you can split the Jordan. I want to split the Pacific. You know, like I want to do double. I want to excel what you've done. Um, but, you know, reading some commentaries and, and checking, cross-referencing, um, that's probably not what he was asking. There's a passage in Deuteronomy 21 that explained how a dad is supposed to pass his inheritance on to his son. Now, don't take this and start changing your wills because you have to do exactly what Deuteronomy 21 says, because I think, as you'll see in a moment, your life probably isn't modeled after Deuteronomy 21. Here's why. It starts off like this. If a man has two wives, okay, so right there, hopefully... That rules you out. But just in case, here's what it says. Say you have two wives. Now, even back then, see, but back then they had multiple wives. Yeah, and they had a lot of problems. And that's why they had this verse. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, the one favored and the other unfavored, the one that gets all the dates and the other one that gets stuck home cleaning the house, and they both give you kids. And you have a firstborn son from the one that you love and a firstborn son from the one that you don't really love that much. And you really, really, really want to give your inheritance to the firstborn son of the one that you love. But chronologically, your firstborn son is from the one that you don't love. It goes to him. We're not playing favorites here. It goes to your firstborn so it says, it says it like this. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and the both, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and the firstborn belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has for he is the first fruits of his strength the right of the firstborn is his so what is a double portion well, in the old testament the double portion was what the firstborn person would get from dad and so it's not to have a double portion of everything the dad had but out of the doling out of things the inheritance the passing on that somebody is going to take the mantle of the last name now, the O'Neill household now belongs to Elias, for example. So, um, don't let Elias hear you laughing, man, because he'll, <laughs> he'll be like, why is that funny? So, this is about a passing on of a mantle. This isn't about one-upping Elijah. This isn't about getting double the power that Elijah had. This is about picking up where Elijah left off. And Elisha wants to be the one to be able to take that mantle, to be able to take that cloak, literally and figuratively, to be able to take that torch and continue the work of the ministry. That's why in verse 10, Elijah's response, he says, uh, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if you do not see me, it shall not be so. He says that it's a hard thing, not because it's that's incredibly difficult, but that passing of the mantle is not something that's for Elijah to do. That's something for God to do, and that's why he says, um, I can't give this to you, but I could at least tell you whether God's going to do it or not. If you see me get taken up, 
That's God's going to pass the mantle to you. If you don't see me get taken up, then you're not the next. You're not the one to take that mantle. And so then 11 and 14, the, the dramatic departure, this episode just keeps getting weirder. Verse 11, and as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and of and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. He's not saying, My father, my father, look at this incredible sight. He's going, I can't get to you. This is fire, this chariots is crazy. I can't get to you, father. He's still trying to reach out to keep Elijah there. He feels like when Elijah goes, something's missing. And he feels so desperately that something's missing. There he goes, can you at least pass whatever you have? Can, you, can it be passed to me so that at least that can continue? But there's still this mental block. Like if Elijah's gone, there goes our confrontation of kings. If Elijah's gone, there goes Mount Carmel episodes. There goes the resurrection of widows' children. There goes miraculous reproduction of food. There goes God's amazing work. What we see here, is a passing of the mantle that's effective because look at how this ends um, verses 12 to 14. He saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes, tore them in two pieces. He took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, went back, stood on the bank of the Jordan, and he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. So you see what happened? As they're crossing the Jordan, Elijah confirms his position as the man, as the prophet of God, rolls up his cloak, strikes the water. Wow, God is with this guy. He crosses over. Elisha asks him, Can I do that? I mean, would, will God be with me like he was with you? If I have to confront a king, will I be able to do that? Will God be with me the same way? And he goes, if you see me, it'll be so. He sees him. The cloak falls on the ground. He grabs the cloak and he's like, well, let's see. Rolls it up, touches the water, splits the way it did for Elijah. Now, a lot of scholars will point out that if you read through 2 Kings, Elisha ends up doing at least twice as many miracles as Elijah did. Um, so truly, Elijah, God was with Elisha as he was with Elijah. Now, what's the story mean? I think what we see here is a stage. It's a play. It's a story that's continued from Genesis. It's going to continue on to Revelation. And we find ourselves in one particular episode, two prophets. One man is exiting the stage. Another man is entering the stage. And there's a passing of the guard. That even though one guy leaves and another guy comes on, the play goes on. Power's not lost. Because the play is not about Elijah or Elisha or Adam or the Apostle John. It's about what God is doing. Um, I, I really hate it. I really hate it when a movie comes out and it's really good and you really like it. And then they release a se- sequel, but they switched actors. I hate that. You know, imagine you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. Imagine Temple Doom came out and like some other guy is Indiana Jones. It's not Indiana Jones, man. It's Harrison Ford, right? I mean, 
But they switch actors like, oh, the public doesn't care and because they had a disagreement with the contract. That just bothers me. But sometimes the story is so grand, the, the, the character is so classic that it doesn't matter who the actor is. And I hesitate to bring this up because I don't really like the series, but my dad, I grew up, my dad forced me to watch all these James Bond movies. And I'm like, I don't get it. I know. James Bond, he's like this guy, you know, with this clean haircut and tight suit. And uh, when he's not womanizing, he's taking on the world. And um, But there's all these actors that play James Bond. You get Sean Connery, Roger Moore, and then it goes on and on and on. They keep switching actors. You know why? Because it doesn't matter. Ian Fleming, the author of the original James Bond novels, created something so classic, uh, sort of a nameless, faceless secret agent. It doesn't matter who really plays the guy, as long as they can kind of nail the suave kind of thing, but it doesn't matter who the actor is, the story of 007 continues. In fact, Ian Fleming mentioned that when he was trying to come up with a name for the character in the 50s when he originally came up with James Bond, he intentionally tried to come up with a name that was the dullest, most plain-sounding name he could possibly come up with because he wanted the figure to be a neutral figure. Exotic things happen around him and happen to him, but he's just a neutral figure. He's sort of a nameless, faceless guy who ends up being uh, a blunt weapon in the hands of the British government. And so he picked the name James Bond, like John Smith, you know, James Bond. And so it doesn't matter who plays him. It's not about Sean Connery. It's not about Daniel Craig. It's, it's about 007. And something similar is going on here in the fact that one man exits and another man enters, but God still has his agent. One guy leaves and one guy comes, but God still has his 007. And God still is going to do his work, is going to accomplish his mission, accomplish his story, even though one guy left and another guy came. What you and I do is we start attaching God's mission to people. You know, if, you, if you're like me, um, you love human interest stories. If, if, somebody is, if somebody's teaching you history and they go, here's what happened. Here's what started the war. Here's what happened in this year. Memorize all these dates. You hate the class. But if the teacher starts telling you about a little kid who grew up, in a certain society, and was taught certain things, and learned that he could speak really well, and give you the background, and eventually tell you that man's name was Adolf Hitler. You go, wow, that's his story? See, that's amazing. Rather than Adolf Hitler, born this day, this is how he came, came to power, did this, that, everybody knows, memorize the dates, take the exam. But if you tell the story about the person, you learn it in a, in a completely different way. It's, it's human interest because we are interested in people. People have a tendency to gravitate toward personalities. Time magazine is one of the most popular weeklies you can find on any stand. It debuted in 1923, and today their circulation boasts over 3 million subscribers. At some point in their history, they introduced a, a column, a page, that would appear every week. In this page, rather than dealing with issues, it just talked about a person, anybody, an actor, a singer, somebody they found that has a really interesting story, and every week... And sales skyrocketed just because of that page. That page became so popular, they decided to do a spinoff that started in 1974, I believe. And that particular magazine would just deal with personalities. Uh, actors, singers, uh, bands, groups, 
his, figures of history, politicians. And the cover will always feature somebody. It's not going to feature abstract images or a bunch of words. It's always going to feature a shot of somebody, some person that you can read about and hopefully connect with. And these things fly off the shelf every week. And still today, when you check out at the grocery line, you walk by that magazine. It's People magazine. Because people are interested in people. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But like with anything else, a good thing can become a dangerous thing. The co-founder of Time Magazine, when he was interviewed back in the day, when he was asked about this spin-off magazine called People Magazine, he said, Time didn't start the emphasis on stories about people. The Bible did. So I think that's why God revealed to him, himself to us through the stories of people, through Elijah, through Elisha. But it's not about Elijah. It's not about Elisha. It's about God working through these people. Um, Elijah's there to serve as an example for us, that's for sure. And there's a lot of heroes of the faith that should be examples to us. That's true. But if we follow and depend on people, we can miss our goal, ultimately, which is to follow Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's okay to follow an example. If that example is a byway, a road to connect with our ultimate example, which is Christ. He's the center. He's the focus. He's the one we fix our eyes on. Not mom and dad. Not your brother who's a minister. Not your favorite radio preacher. It's Christ. So I get a little bit nervous when churches more and more, they plant churches, but they only plant the churches if they can, if they can somehow make sure that their superstar preacher can preach there too. Now, maybe they can't find other competent preachers, but it just, I think American churches need to be careful with person-centered ministries. Where if I follow the typical mainline track, I would create a website and call it Lucas O'Neill Ministries Incorporated. I don't know why. I, I just There's something about that that just makes me want to pull back and say, you know, it's not about me. Elijah's work, Elisha's work, Moses' work, Joshua's work, they were all doing the work of Christ even back then. They were advancing God's work in this world. You and I find ourselves in the future that Elijah couldn't foresee. We find ourselves in a place where God's kingdom work needs to be advanced like never before. We live in the end times. You know, if you're like me, you, you wonder, where are the heroes of the faith today? Where, where's the new D.L. Moody? Um, the buzz in Christendom for a long time has been, who, who's going to take Billy Graham's mantle? All these conversations, about who's going to be the next Billy Graham? Listen, God uses great people to do great things, but what he does in this world doesn't ride on their shoulders. We don't have to mourn the loss of great preachers and great leaders as if we're losing ground because of their departure. We mourn the loss. We don't mourn it like, oh, oh Billy Graham! I said, wow, Billy Graham was great. But you know what? Next. That's what God, God is next. I've got people I've got feet on the ground. I've got hands and feet and eyes and ears. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. And rather than sitting back and waiting for the next superstar to lead the way, we've got to step up. 
Because it's not about people, it's about what God does in this world. And we each have connection to that God. See, this passage, it shows us that while Elisha and the prophets were desperate to not lose Elijah, God's work remained uninterrupted. Elijah was amazing. Go read 1 Kings again. That's some crazy stuff. And I think anybody would be crazy to not be intimidated to try to step into those shoes or to wear that cloak. But God's work remained uninterrupted because God's work is not centered around Elijah. God is doing it. See, if you read these stories and you were to write out who are the main characters, you might go, main protagonist, main good guy, main hero, Elijah, main bad guy, Ahaziah. You're reading on the surface. But if you start back from Genesis and get what's going on underneath, you go, okay, the human players are Elijah and Ahab, but there's something diabolical going on behind the scenes. There's some spiritual forces, some principalities in darkness that's moving Ahab and Jezebel to be that wicked. But God is still at work in the world. And the main character is God. I don't know if you've noticed, but every title for every sermon in this series through Elijah starts with the word God. God requires this. God determines that. I didn't tell Erwin to, but when he preached and he made his title, he did the same thing. Because it's not a series about how to be like Elijah. Seriously, what did God do to Elijah? Remember James said, Elijah was a man just like us. Well, then how did he do those awesome things? God. God is amazing, not Elijah. God is amazing, not Billy Graham. God is amazing, not Lucas. Well, I don't know. I don't find myself in there. But God is amazing, not any particular person. It's about who God is and what he does. Let me drive this home a little bit further. I want to be sensitive as I do. Many of us are struggling with recent losses in this church. And when we lost Armin, I have to tell you, I... I felt really selfish. I told Tina, I'm like, I feel selfish. Is that selfish to feel this way? She's like, what do you mean? I said, well, who's going to help with the finances at church? Now, when I think Armin, I don't think, oh, good. Finances are taken care of. Like, I don't care about the person. So that's why I felt selfish. All right, I do mourn the loss of Armin, the person, but, but I can't help but to, to feel like I'm mourning the loss of a hero of the faith, uh, somebody who's helping us advance the kingdom, like losing a soldier on the front lines. It's not that you don't care about other soldiers, but, but somebody who is helping advance those front lines and, and then they're lost, you, you feel that vacuum. And maybe as a pastor, I feel that a little more. I even thought to myself, who, who's going to fix my closet doors? That's an inside joke, and if, if he can hear somehow, I assure you, he's laughing. But... Who's going to put his arm around me after I feel like I bombed a sermon and tell me, I love you, guy. We're blessed to have you here. That encourages me. That motivates me. That propels me. It's not about the sermon, Luke. It's not about the sermon all the time. It's not always about the perfect manuscript. It's about the people and the encouragement and the mission that we all do together. The greater, grander story. You know, Irma used to ask me periodically, are you discouraged? Don't be discouraged, Pastor. 
I go, what are you talking about? I'm not discouraged. I'm not discouraged. And I try to encourage her with a few words. Hey, you know, things are going to happen here. We baptize this many people. We got some new members. Don't worry about it. Okay, it's okay, okay. She's always concerned that I'll be discouraged. Um, you know what? After some of our recent losses, Henny and Irma and Armin, I begin to think about our older generation. And sometimes I get tempted to be discouraged. Because I find myself like Elisha. If this person goes, well, who's going to do this? What will our visitation ministry like be like without Al? Who's going to deliver moving, spirit-filled prayers when Werner leaves us? Who's going to itemize the spring cleaning checklist if we're not, as, not around? I mean, it goes all the way from pulpit stuff to nitty-gritty stuff that needs to get done. And so the losses hurt us because we grow to depend on people, and that's not bad in itself. We need to appreciate people and what they bring to the table. But God teaches us that advancing his kingdom work in this world is not dependent upon the superstars. He takes the torch. He gives the torch. He gives the mantle. He takes the mantle. Gives the mantle. Notice what I pointed out earlier. When Elisha asked Elijah for that double portion, Elijah said, that's it. Ooh, that's difficult. It's not that he didn't want to grant Elisha's wish. It's that he realized that that's something he can't grant. The only thing he could grant is to recognize whether God did it or not. I think the implication there is that God made the decision because God transferred the power. Elijah's like, this, if this were my power, if this were something I were in control of, yeah, I'd choose who I'm going to give it to. But this is not my power, and this is not something I'm in control of. I'm not the main player of the story. I'm not the main character. I, I'm not the main role player in the story. God is. God is the director. God is the author. God is the producer. God is the main character. It's all Him. And so the only thing I can tell you is to recognize whether He's going to do it for you or not. But I can't say I'm going to do it. And so you and I don't need to go find some jacket that Billy Graham used to wear. You know, if, if I want to preach spirit-filled sermons, I don't have to, to drive over to Northfield, Massachusetts and approach D.L. Moody's grave and rub his stone or something. It's not about D.L. Moody. I don't need the spirit of D.L. Moody. I need the spirit of God to preach. And so I just, I just want to leave you with a couple passages. You don't have to turn there. Maybe you could jot them down, look them up later. But I just want to kind of let these wash over you so you can get the point. Some passages on what each and every one of you, those of you who have accepted Christ, not the elite among you, not those of you that have been here for 30 years, not those of you who are capable of leading a Bible study and not making any exegetical errors. Each and every one of you who have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, get this mantle, anointing. 1 John 2.27, John encourages them. You know why you can't be deceived? False teachers come in and try to deceive you, but I'm encouraged and I know you can't be deceived. You know why you can't be deceived? He says, because the anointing that you receive from him, from God, abides in you. I know we like to pray, God anoint Lucas today that he preaches. Let it be, Lucas, I was an anointed sermon. I get the usage of that. But biblically, 
each and every one of us who are in Christ are anointed, not with physical oil, but with the spiritual oil, which is the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit abides in you. It was only upon the prophets of the Old Testament. But it didn't indwell them, like Christ promised each and every believer. You're anointed by God. That's 1 John 2.27, if you want to look it up later. Luke 10.19, Jesus tells his disciples, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. You know, when someone comes up to me, Pastor, can you come and pray over my daughter because my daughter is struggling with nightmares or something like that? Or, Pastor, I'm having uh, uh, demonic attacks. Can you, can you pray with me? I try to make it clear that I'm not going to pray with you with an authority that I have that you don't have. I'm not Pastor Lucas with this authority up here. And then you're a little poor underling that needs my authority to come. It sometimes maybe feels like that. I say, do you know Christ? Because if you know Christ, you cast it out. Jesus taught that if, if somebody comes and it, it exercises a demon, let's say, if we want to use that term, because of the authority invested in the person doing that exorcism, and then the minister walks away and the person goes, whew, walks away, the demon goes and gets a bunch of his buddies, comes back and finds a house swept up, and they come and take over big time now. Why? Because that person didn't do it. It was someone else's authority. But God's granted each and every one of you authority to tread serpents and to trample scorpions. Not, not real ones. Spiritual, authority, spiritual powers. Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. He's saying, when I ask you to go make disciples, I'm not saying... Those of you who are awesome evangelists, go make disciples. Those of you who can really preach, like Charles Swindoll, go evangelize. Go preach a sermon. He's saying, as a disciple, go make a disciple. Well, on what authority? Mine. I'm investing it to you as a Christian. You wear the badge. It's Christ's authority, but you wear the uniform. Right? And because of that badge, Christ's authority is invested in you. You can go do kingdom work based on Christ's authority. So you have anointing, you have authority, you have power. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. How, do I be a, how am I a witness for God? How do I witness for God? By the power that God gives you by the Holy Spirit. So we stop looking around. When is God going to raise up super spiritual, powerful people to advance our church? It's been three years. Church isn't growing, Pastor Lucas. Maybe we need a powerful associate pastor. We need Christians that are mobilized to understand they have power. And they're witnesses. I don't have to sit back and wonder where the superstar pastors are. Just like you don't have to look around and wish for more superstar Christians. We are God's people. You may not feel like you have a divine calling, but you do. You do. God used Elijah in marvelous ways. It can be argued that God used Elisha in even greater ways, but none of it was about either of them. God was the central character the whole time, all along, and he still is. 
surrender your heart, recognize your double portion that God has granted to you by Christ through the Holy Spirit, that he's promised every Christian. It's on us to accept that call, step up, take the torch. Let's advance God's work in this world through this church, through our lives. Let's pray. Father, as much as we miss those who've gone before us to meet you, as much as we'll feel the vacuum of the things they used to bring to the table, may we not be so discouraged as to think that your plans get interrupted. That suddenly where you were wanting to take Christian Fellowship Church is a little bit derailed. God, you're in control of our days. You're in control of the number of them. And so it's no mistake that we have the particular players in this particular place that you've brought here. And you've kept until this time. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see how we fit into the big picture. Whether it's behind the scenes work or a more prominent role or something in between, that we would see how we can fit in and we wouldn't be comfortable being spectator people anymore. Letting the few and the proud pick up all the slack in the kingdom work. Lord, I pray for those of us who do a lot of the work that we would recognize there are other, maybe more capable people. And we would delegate and love to delegate and love to say, hey, I've been doing this for 30 years. How about you do it? And so we can all come together and recognize our anointing, our authority, our power that you've invested in us to advance the work of your kingdom. And as much as we appreciate people that come by and make such a huge splash and we love it, we ask that you would each help us to each use our resources and talents and spiritual gifts to at least make persistent, consistent ripples that will echo into eternity. Help us to follow you and be spirit-filled worshipers, your hands and feet in this community and in this church, so we can advance your work, because it's all about you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.